Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Eric Ostrich. Howdy. Michael Reese. Hello, in a normal volume. <laughs> and today we're joined with our special guest, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, can you give us a little introduction to who you are and uh, kind of what you're doing? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. My name is uh, Jeff Kreeftmeyer. I um, I'm from the Netherlands. Um, I work at a company called AppSignal, which is a tool for application monitoring uh, for Ruby and Elixir. And uh, there, I work on the integrations team. So I deal with the code that deals with your app uh, and mostly the Elixir integration. And I uh, write articles for our uh, Elixir and Ruby newsletters. Very cool. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And I would, I would love to hear just kind of how you got started with Elixir. Uh, like, were you working at AppSignal and then like, hey, we'd like to do some Elixir? Or you know, kind of what, how did you come to be using Elixir in the first place? Yeah, it kind of started out the, uh, the other way around. So um, uh, I got into Elixir because I was a Ruby programmer and uh, wanted to try some functional programming. And uh, so rolled into Elixir. And when I uh, started at AppSignal, they had this idea to start uh, the Elixir integration already. And um, yeah, that was, a, that was a good fit. Uh, so I, uh, I picked that project up after it, uh, after it launched. Nice. And uh, I know it's on the uh, AppSignal blog that you created a three-part blog post series that was covering the creation of the game Go in Phoenix Live View. And I thought that was just a, a fun, interesting approach. For one, it's like you're just kind of doing all the development in the open and making it a process and sharing the whole, the whole discovery and experience of it. Uh, so I just love to kind of hear a little bit of background about uh, doing that and was that part of maybe AppSignal encouraging that kind of activity to to be publishing uh, on their blog that way kind of what can you share yeah so we have two uh newsletters uh, called ruby magic and elixir alchemy and um uh, these are just newsletters for m more experienced programmers uh to uh, uh to just teach them teach them some some programming chops and uh, Life view was just a topic we really wanted to get into. Uh, I was very excited about trying it, and um, uh, so I I was looking for an an example project to do, and then stumbled across the React tutorial, um, which is I think a three thousand word article about setting up React and implementing Tic Tac Go, uh, Tic Tac Toe, I mean, and uh, it's a pretty good tutorial, and it has history, so you can 
uh, revert moves and uh, go back in time. So I decided to do something like that to give me some way to compare the uh, React implementation to uh, the Phoenix Live View one. And then halfway through writing it, I decided that I didn't really like doing tic-tac-toe and I switched it out to Go because um, uh, Go is a fun game and the rules uh, on the outside aren't very complex. That might be a good time to just kind of give uh, the listener an, a, a little brief introduction to what Go is. Like, I know it's an ancient game, but just kind of can you give a little bit of a background as to kind of anything that might be relevant for them? Yeah, it, it is. It's, I think it's about 3,000 years old. It's a Chinese, uh, it came from China, uh, and it's what you call an abstract strategy board game. So it's roughly a little bit like chess, as, as in it has a board and stones. Um, but uh, basically, it's a, it, it's, it's a board with squares, uh, and the lines uh, of the squares uh, intersect, which are the positions. So if we take a practice board, which is nine by nine, uh, uh, that has 81 spots. And one player has black stones, the other has white stones, and you put them on the board uh, one by one. Uh, and the goal of the game is to capture the most territory on the board, uh, which you do by surrounding it with your stones. And if you surround the other player's stone with your stones, uh, taking all its liberties, then you capture that stone. And that's most of the, the setup, most of the rules uh, right there. The, the rules are, are more complex than, than, uh, than that, and we'll probably get into that in a little bit. But uh, this is enough to get you uh, to play Go, pretty much. And from what I understand of Go, I think it's there's a perhaps a fair comparison to chess where the rules are fairly simple, but it can develop into very complex strategies and you know a, a lifetime of learning and, and mastery. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, easy to learn and hard to master. Yeah, it's it, it looks it, it looks simpler than it than it eventually is. <laughs> I I think one uh, little caveat here that we might want to mention uh, is that. The game Go has a pretty interesting history with AI. So it was only recently that um, the AI um, programs were able to play competitively with humans um, for a long time, even I think longer even than the history of trying to get computers to play chess. All of the computer programs that tried to play Go were just bad. Like if you were a good human player, you could always beat all the computers. Um, and it is only fairly recently that enough progress was made that um, that they can be competitive at like a at a world stage, so um, it's really interesting to me. Anytime you find these kinds of problems that seem to have been around for a long time, that humans keep coming back to like, oh, I want to play chess, I want to play Go. Um, they do seem to share that characteristic of being of having fairly simple rules, but then if you look at it from sort of like a game theory or um, information complexity standpoint. They are actually quite complex, and there's so many interaction effects that it becomes uh, prohibitively expensive just to solve the game by looking at all possible combinations. You actually have to try to understand the game. And uh, at least for me, that's always been one of the parts of programming that is exciting is finding a way to make a program that can reason about something because it actually understands what it's, what it's seeing or what it's observing to some degree. Um, so I think uh, I would love to hear a little bit, Jeff, from you on as you started to program this, when you first approached it, 
how big of a problem did you think it was as you got deeper into it? Were there things that surprised you about um, how, how hard the implementation was or, or what the game, you know, how your implementation came together for this game? So, uh, yeah, when I started um, implementing the game, I, I started out just doing uh, what I pretty much just explained. Um, you have a board, you can place stones on the board one at a time, and there are certain positions where you cannot place stones. And that's, for example, where the other, opponent, where the other player already has put a stone or where one of your stones already is. Uh, but that's a simple rule, right? You can just pretty much take the position and see if it's already filled and then deem that move uh, illegal. It gets more uh, difficult when you talk about um, situations where you have a spot where putting a stone there would immediately capture it. That's also an illegal move. You cannot do that. So if you have a circle of white stones and you're, you play with the black stones and you put a black stone in the center of it, then it would be immediately captured and you can't make that move. And a way to do that is to, to figure out what would happen if the move was done and then figure out if the stone that was just placed there, if it would still be there after all of the captures uh, are, are completed. So that's still fairly, fairly simple to do. You can still do that. Um, but when it gets more difficult is when implementing the co rule. And co in uh, Go is a rule that states that if you place a stone somewhere, you cannot revert the board to a state it's already been in. And to do that, you'd ha you will have to um, keep track of history, right? So you'll have to remember the, uh, the previous states of the board. And yeah, that, that's, that's where it becomes difficult. So uh, the rules are quite simple to understand, but implementing them in, um, in, in, in uh, software like this uh, can get quite difficult. So originally I wanted to do one article like the React tutorial and maybe make it shorter because I thought 3000 words was very long, but halfway through I, I realized that at least the, what I wanted to, to tell in the beginning had to be, had to be two articles to, uh, to even work. So the first, the first article is about setting up live view and getting everything to work. And the second part is uh, pretty much just go theory and how to implement uh, the code rule. I really like the, uh, just the implementation of the code rule, just the general concept of, hey, check this thing. If it's valid, don't accept the new state. Always makes me happy just how easy it seems to be to add validation just when I've implemented games in Elixir as well. ElixirCasts create screencasts that cover a wide range of Elixir and Phoenix topics. Each episode tackles a specific problem or explores a new library, demystifying it in a language that's easy to understand. Whether you are just starting with Elixir or are using it professionally with 100 plus episodes, there's something for you. Go check them out at elixircasts.io. So you mentioned uh, coming back to the, Re the React tic-tac-toe version that kind of inspired this whole process. I was just curious, um, after having done this in Live View, what kind of comparisons did you come away with with how you would have done something similar in React? Like, did you feel like Live View, uh, I don't know, strengths, weaknesses, kind of what, what were your takeaways? Well, the nicest thing about Live View, about using Live View, I think, was not having well, it's, it's a two-parter, I think. You don't have to write JavaScript, 
which is always uh, which is always great for me. Uh, the, the 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 JavaScript is already written and you can do everything in Elixir, uh, and you don't have to worry about state. So whenever you update your the the state of the board, then magically uh, the browser or the, the the browser is updated to to show the new board. So if you decide to uh, have a, a a button that undoes something, you can just pop a state off the stack and get back to the previous state and everything will will just work and uh, so that makes it that that makes it a lot easier i think in your current implement implementation jeff um when you're tracking that history the the state history do you do that by taking some sort of struct that represents the the state of the board and do you just keep sort of snapshots of that do you keep a log of what actions were taken how what does that state history look like right now in the first implementation, uh, I had one state uh, struct, which just had the positions and who whose turn it was. And when I, uh, in part two, I think, when I uh, implement the code rule, uh, I had uh, uh, another struct that had the game. And the game has a list of history, and that's just a list of state structs. So the state updates every time. So you keep the complete state, and um, that's useful because there's a th there are undo and redo buttons. So having the state copied uh, allows you to just remove one of the state uh, structs from the list, and then you'll you're back with the the uh, uh, the previous one. So how do you uh, keep the game state? Do you keep it in the live view process itself? Is it another gen server? Like, how does that work? Uh, both, actually. Um, so um, as in the first, the first version had it just in the live view process. Uh, and um, in part three, where uh, I implement multiplayer, or when, when I start to implement my multiplayer uh, functionality, uh, that had to be moved to a separate uh, gen server. So what I do there is uh, instead of having everything in the game state or in the in the live view process, I move that out to a separate gen server uh, because it has to be shared over multiple connected players. And I hook that up to a dynamic supervisor so players can start uh, games themselves uh, and games can be stopped. And um, so yeah, it's a, it's in a gen server uh, eventually. Uh, what was your experience like with using the dynamic supervisor? Was that a, I don't know, any any takeaways from that? Well, it was uh, it was fun to play around with because the dynamic supervisors aren't really uh, um, aren't really very interested in this uh, in in this story, as in their supervisors, but they're just uh, spawned after the 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 app starts. But um, keeping track of all of these supervised processes is a little bit difficult because you you now have to connect two players to the same gen server and uh, you cannot do that with uh, the process ID because it's a supervised uh, process. Um, so you'll you you would need to to store the the game names in the in a registry, right? So Elixir has the registry for that where you can name a, a process and uh, so then you can uh, share that registry name or the game name between two players and uh, figure out which game that belongs to. Um, so the dynamic supervisors weren't weren't too difficult, but the registry, right? That's a 
that that makes it or the the uh, process names that makes it more difficult to to handle i think that's cool though i like the idea of using a dynamic supervisor just because it is the kind of thing where you're going to spawn a game instance and if it crashes it's like well well you might have to restart your game uh unless you were to you know choose to persist all the moves so that it could be restarted uh but i think it's a great uh use case for that and uh so i was curious about you said you had to get like these two separately connected users connected to the same gen server and i was wondering what you were using for communicating moves uh to each user like to their own live use so they would update was that like uh, using PubSub or were you using something else uh, yeah so if you uh, connect two different or if you two connections to the same uh, live view uh, uh, then one uh, player won't be updated if the other makes a move uh, so this is pretty much PubSub uh, so we have the game names and we have PubSub channels with the same name as the game and whenever a move is made, a message is sent to um, the the channel that belongs to the game to update everything. So, and that goes both ways. So there's no real information in the message. Just it, it just calls out update, and um, the the state is updated from the uh, from the live view module. Have you given any thought to a global registry? I saw you're using the Elixir registry for the uh, for the multi, uh, multiplayer. How are you, are you gonna? Have you considered how you're gonna handle multi, like a multi-server? Would you just move everyone to the same server, or would you use a, a more global registry? I haven't really uh, thought about that yet, but I'm uh, I'm open to suggestions there. I just want to read the blog post, man. This <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this is yeah. This this uh, this game could go huge, you know. Like this could be, you could be like the you know a unicorn, like the Go unicorn, and <laughs> you got know, to got to plan for the billions of simultaneous users. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's I also a I also really like the idea of the Go game written in Elixir and not GoLang. So please yes. make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a the the great thing about this the, uh, writing about something like this is that it it is endless, right? You can you can pretty much get any uh, subject that you want to talk about in Elixir into rolled into this uh, into into an article series like this. Um, for example, we haven't even touched on assigning players or assigning uh, connections with different with different player colors, right? So if two people connect, then th there's there's no thing yet to make the make one person the, use the black stones and the other use the white stones so that's um that's planned for the next article but right there's 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 a lot of stuff you can you, you can you can talk about still you obviously need that need a dashboard that shows all the ongoing games live yeah this is just just talking about this uh, uh yields so many ideas <laughs> <laughs> This uh, also really reminds me of Lance Halverson's book. Um, oh man, I'll find a link and drop it in the show notes. But uh, he, it's about functional programming on the web. But the example he uses is a non-copyrighted game in which you are have a grid of tiles and you're picking ones to fire at. <laughs> and uh, it really is true. You can fit so much of the whole Elixir um, Oh yeah, thanks. Eric just dropped it. Web development, uh, functional web development with Elixir and OTP. That uh, you can fit so much of the whole Elixir language and 
And a lot of problems that we solve for normal web apps also fall into these sorts of things. Like, you know, if you were going to have uh, a service where people are doing code review for each other, then you would probably have one person, like you need to have a connection where they end up in a similar channel together or share some sort of connectivity between their sessions. You would need to label one of those people as like the person submitting code and the other one as the reviewer. So a lot of these problems are general purpose problems. Um, Collaborative real-time state. Yeah. Yeah, seriously, that's a that's a huge problem space to attack. I also just wanted to say briefly, I love that when we talk about supervisors, the answer is kind of like, well, I used one and and then I moved on. Like I just did everything else. And yeah, I mean, just go try to build that in in Java and then write a blog post because I don't think the experience would be like, oh, I just I wrote it and I moved on and it never was a problem again. One of the other things I, I just have as a takeaway from this is talking about the different technologies that were involved in creating it and just how much of that is just already built in to the libraries that we're already using. Like, uh, you know, Phoenix with LiveView. Well, LiveView is an extra library, but it's part of that whole Phoenix ecosystem uh, with PubSub. You know, all of those things are just readily there and available and make it possible to create a game or an application that is interactive and collaborative like this. And I think it's great. And I, I think it's awesome that you uh, documented the process. And in the show notes also, we have a link to the GitHub where people can download it, explore it, uh, even host it themselves and play with it. Uh, but it's just a, a great way for people to kind of play with some of these different technologies that we're talking about, see how they're actually used in an application and get some insight as to how uh, that might be something beneficial for their own applications. So awesome. Thanks for uh, sharing all of that information. So another question I had is just, are you doing anything else with Live View, uh, you know, separate from maybe, maybe actually for work or maybe uh, just personal projects? Are you, are you continuing to explore and play in this space? Yeah, I've had a, um, uh, a side project where uh, I tried to uh, uh, build a, a fish tank with a little bit of uh, artificial intelligence and uh, stuff like that. And, um, the, the, I, I did um, live view in there in terms of having an SVG in a browser that just updates. And for stuff like that, you really see how fast it is because you can, you can really get a lot of, uh, a lot of performance out of live view uh, like that as well, uh, where uh, updating an SVG with 100 different items uh, 60 times per second is something it can kind of do. Uh, which which was also amazing to me, but um, yeah, I've been I've been playing around with with Life View uh, uh, a lot actually, but but mostly in in um, game ish toy ish projects like this. Have you ever felt like JavaScript is just everywhere? Well, we have. We actually had a conversation on JavaScript Jabber about what you can build with JavaScript. We've also talked about what JavaScript is and how we're inspired by the language. If you're interested in JavaScript or doing web development, then you definitely need to check out JavaScript Jabber. You can find it at javascriptjabber.com. You mentioned the, uh, the fish tank. I, uh, do you have code for that? I've been, I've been interested in the idea of letting people upload little... Um, uh, oh my goodness, my brain just died. But the uh, TCL, anyway, fish or some kind of simulated creature representations and letting people multiplayer just throw stuff in a tank. Seems fun. 
So like a little simulation where you can interact with these little bots kind of doing their own little simple rules AI. Yes. Yes. I, I had also wanted to years ago, I think it was because of Sim Ant from the Maxis game company uh, who made the original Sim City and everything. Uh, Sim Ant was a little simulator. It's like the ants would follow these basic little rules. You can kind of tweak their rules to and then take over control of individual ants and and have that impact the game. It, it was fun. Just, oh man, I'm still haunted by the sound of the lawnmower because they would simulate someone driving by with the lawnmower and all your ants that are on the surface got sucked up. <laughs> um, yes, Mark, let's build this. Let's make this happen. Uh, I also just needed to quickly drop a link to ASCII Aquarium. Uh, I think this actually got picked on a previous episode. I think this podcast is where I learned about this, but you can brew install ASCII Aquarium and when you run it, it simulates an aquarium in your console just using ASCII art, which is... It's just fun and amazing. It makes me happy. Wow, it's cool. Um, I, uh, the fish tank is um, actually an, um, a project where I try to implement the uh, NEAT algorithm, neuroevolution through augmenting topologies, which is uh, an evolutionary uh, AI um, uh, system where it's, it's evolutionary. So this, the, the ones that survive longest have more time to reproduce and uh, have more chance to uh, pass on their genes. So the fish in this uh, idea can move around uh, and they need to find food to survive and stuff like that. Um, I got pretty far. Um, the code isn't up anywhere, but um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, in, I'm dealing with, uh, with evolving the, the, the creatures right now. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's on the back burner a little bit, but um, yeah, it was it was it was um, it, it was look it was starting to look quite quite good. It sounds awesome. That does sound like a fun game kind of project. Uh, I, I just can't help but think, you know, you could just you know, like you can go in any direction with these kinds of things, right? And obviously, I always take it too far in one direction. And uh, what one of the ideas would be, you know, I sometimes can't keep real fish alive. So supervisors for the win, right? I can respawn my fish and keep my fish alive. Or I could have fun with that. And like when a fish dies, it could respawn as a zombie fish, which now is antagonistic to the other fish or something. And they have to like flee. So I don't know. You could have lots of crazy fun. <laughs> yeah. I actually implemented it with them with, uh, with a supervisor to make sure that if something crashes and then it's restarted, usually a, a, a normal exit for a process just means the fish died and that's part of the part of the simulation so uh, yeah it's all uh, it's all uh, uh, supervisors uh, all the way down i also think that's more of a bottleneck than the the um uh, than the live view part uh, that and the rendering in, in your browser which uh, reloading an svg uh, 60 times a second uh, uh, kind of clogs everything up a little bit <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff, for coming on and sharing with us some of the projects you've been working on and the discovery whole process and sharing the learnings as you go. That's uh, really beneficial for everyone in the community. And I'm, I'm grateful for it as well. So if now let's go ahead and transition to picks. Josh, do you have something you can share? Yeah. Uh, so there's this article on parsing a typed EDSL. So this is, uh, they do testing on Tezos smart contracts. So it's just a little Haskell parser that turns the, the Mickelson language into a parsed 
uh, AST, which is which is nice and strongly typed. Anyway, so I thought it was neat to read through. That's really all I got. All I ever talk about is programming, I suppose. Sorry. <laughs> awesome. Eric, how about you? Uh, so I'll do uh, two this week. So we'll keep one in the sort of theme of board games, I guess, since we talked about Go. Uh, it's called Wingspan from Stonemeyer Games. This was, I don't know, super popular. You're you're like a bird watcher trying to see all the different birds and whatnot. Um, so it's pretty cool. Stonemeyer Games does good stuff, so check that out. Uh, and then my second one, I've been playing uh, Dragon Quest Eleven on my Switch now that it's on the Switch. So yeah, that's a fun game. So uh, JRPG, whatnot. So yeah, check those out. Cool. Michael, how about you? Uh, I'll follow that up. So um, as we were talking about board games, I couldn't help but remember an old game called Fireball Island. And I played it uh, in my younger years. And then a few years ago, a friend managed to find uh, an original copy on eBay. And we would get together during lunchtime at work and play it, which was an immense amount of fun and resulted in much screaming in the office. And so I highly recommend that. There's a company called Restoration Games that's making that kind of remade the game um, so that you don't have to search eBay forever. Uh, and then secondarily, I wanted to pick Observer CLI. So it's a hex package that basically gives you the Observer UI, but rendered in a console. So um, this is really useful for me. Uh, oftentimes I have um, my various projects running in, you know, they were on an Elixir release that ends up in a Docker image. Um, but that means they just like always have dynamic IPs and that if I want to tunnel to them, Erlang distribution takes a little bit of like tweaking to get it to work. Um, and oftentimes all I want is a couple of basic numbers that I know exist in Observer. So the Observer CLI uses um, Recon under the hood. That's a library by Fred Aver, which is designed for production uh, introspection at runtime in a production live system without it like prevents you from doing the things that would bring your system to its knees. And then someone else went and built Observer CLI on top of that. So if, as long as you can get a shell into that Elixir process and have an Elixir prompt, then you could start the Observer CLI. And you have the ability then to kind of browse through and just say, what processes have lots of messages right now? Or who's holding all the RAM? Um, and you can do that kind of uh, investigation, which uh, turns out to be very useful when you are a non-perfect programmer. And uh, so very useful to me. That's all I got. It saved my butt once this year. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, I'd heard about that before and forgot about it. And so thank you for the reminder. I will probably go and add it to a project today and try it out. Okay, so my pick today is it came from one of our previous guests just recently and Michael Reese uh, plus one did, and, which was the, the podcast Acquired. And I tried it out. Uh, so I was, just made a, a cross-country car journey and that was really long and painful in, in its own right. But I, it gave me a lot of podcast time. And so I, I'd gone through, I'd like totally gone through all of my normal podcast queue. And I was like, oh yeah, they'd mentioned this one. I'd subscribe to it. Let me download a whole bunch of episodes. And I was really impressed with uh, what they are doing there. And basically what it is, is it is a podcast where they look at companies that go public or are acquired and just kind of the whole history behind the founders, how it came into being, how, you know, everything that we can know, uh, how the companies uh, interacted with other companies. And so like they had one on Lyft and Uber and Slack 
And so just and Pinterest and like, oh, it was so engaging for me. Like they're telling story basically. And, and when I'm on a long car ride, that was really engaging. So I will pick that one. Jeff, how about you? Yeah, I'm keeping with the, the, the board game uh, theme a little bit. Um, uh, first off, um, uh, Go, the game. It's great. It's easy to learn, hard to master, uh, but it's a lot of fun. So uh, if you have a chance, uh, uh, try, uh, try playing it uh, because, uh, because it's great. Uh, and secondly, another board game, uh, uh, it's called Mansions of Madness. It's a cooperative horror game where you have, uh, where you use uh, your phone or your iPad as uh, some kind of uh, dungeon master almost. And you take, you investigate a house uh, for, and looking for, you're looking for clues. You might run into uh, some, some horrible monsters and um, you take turns with the iPad. So you do a couple of moves and then something happens. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, that's a lot of fun as well. And um, I have a third one because uh, we, we briefly mentioned it, um, the uh, AlphaGo documentary uh, from 2017, which chronicles the, um, the attempt of DeepMind to, uh, to crack uh, Go, and, as in to win, uh, to be the world champion, I think. Um, uh, that's a great watch as well, uh, if you want to know if that, if that worked out or not. Great. Well, Jeff, thank you for coming on today and talking with us. If people would like to follow you online or connect with you, how would you like them to do that? Uh, thanks for having me. You, um, the easiest way, I think, is uh, to follow me on Twitter. I'm Jay Kreeftmeyer, uh, and otherwise on uh, my website, I'm, I'm jeffkreeftmeyer.com, and you can always uh, send me an email. I'm uh, jeff at appsignal.com. Great. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.